Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by VP of Emerging Tech Portfolio, Brian Hopkins, and VP and Principal Analyst, Julie Oss, to discuss the 10 emerging technologies that should be on every technology leader's list to review this year. Welcome both. Sam, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with economic uncertainty that's, you know, in every news outlet today. Where is spending on emerging tech sort of fitting within the tech leaders' plans and agendas right now with that as the backdrop? Well, I mean, the latest survey we ran kind of mid-year tells us that two-thirds of executives are still planning on increasing their spend on emerging technologies. Um, so that's pretty important. And furthermore, when we when to dig into that, uh, 85% of companies have some kind of an emerging technology function. I, I realize that some of this data that we got kind of uh, uh, predated some of the economic uncertainty we're running into right now. But as we've seen in the past, I think a lot of uh, clients that I talk to are looking towards emerging technology as a way to help them cut costs in other areas. But you know, we're going to have to look at the data as it plays out to see how that actually runs. Because typically in downturns, there is some flattening of investment and emerging tech might follow that a little bit. So Brian, quickly before we get into the list, how would you advise a, a client or anybody thinking about emerging technology who wants to save it in their budget, make sure that that doesn't get uh, pulled out? How do they go about doing that? How do they ensure that there's at least still some budget um, put aside for emerging tech? Well, we're going to see a big shift away from those innovative things that have long timeframes as more towards the things that are closer, like in the 12 to 18 months range. So it just means a lot of firms that are mature enough to stretch to some of those bigger ROI kind of things are going to turn more towards some of those emerging technologies and linking them to innovation investments uh, that can deliver that shorter benefit and, and probably lower some risk a little bit as well. So if I were going to offer an opinion too, it's like, you know, one of the roles that I play at Forrester is looking into the future and thinking about the future of consumer digital experiences. And when we look at that future, it's a, it's a future that will be built through incremental investments in emerging technology along the way. This isn't, you can't dial us back to 10, 15 years ago and said, well, you know, I didn't have money for a mobile app and I can just go build one in three months and catch up. When we look at the technologies that it takes to create more invisible experiences that drive this convenience for consumers, there are so many of these underlying technologies like AI and machine learning. It's very incremental. You have to start today, at least make some small investments and keep building towards that future. You can't just take big leaps in the future. So you've got to stay in the game today. I think it's an important reminder because especially since, you know, with the pandemic, folks were forced to invest in digital real fast. And this time around with a turndown, I, I worry that folks are going to think, okay, well, this time we don't have to. We could pull back on digital. We could pull back on technology, which sounds like you two are saying that's that's absolutely the wrong idea. I think it's the wrong idea for two reasons. So I think the first one is, is when companies went fast, they focused on getting the job done, but not getting the job done well with a great user experience around the technologies that they rolled out. So I feel like now they've got more time to make those experiences better. And then I go back to the first thing I said about how the improvements here over the next five to 10 years are going to feel very incremental and you've got to stay in the game. 
I think the other thing playing out, Sharon, is is one of the things we saw through through the pandemic is is, and we talked about this before. CIOs and technology leaders actually stepped forward and were able to demonstrate how to get their business through a lot of the tough times uh, using technologies and making progress faster than they'd ever been asked to before. So this demonstration of of capability, I think, has built more trust uh, with uh, members of the leadership team. So I think now that we're hitting this this downturn that's kind of on the tail end of the out of who's coming out of the pandemic, we're going to see a different behavior, at least with some firms where they where because leadership team and we're already seeing this with clients I'm working to are saying, look, you did it then. How do we use technologies? How do we innovate? How do we use some of these emerging technologies to get us through this troubled time as well? It's just like I said, I think a lot of the technologies that we're focusing on are going to be those that have that nearer term return on investment for a while. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So you all published a top 10 list. So let's get into the top 10 list. But before we do, um, there are a couple technologies that folks might expect to be on this list that are not on that list. One in particular that I know is top of mind, Julie, do you want to hit that first before we get into what is actually on the list? The metaverse is not on the list. So so that, to be fair, and as Brian will talk, the metaverse did make our list of top 20, but it didn't make our list of top 10. And I'll give you a few reasons why I think that was the case. So the first one is, is there is no metaverse, and we don't expect there to be a metaverse for at least another five to 10 years. And so folks may say, well, there's a lot of press around the metaverse. And I'd say what there is, is a lot of press around online virtual immersive experiences that people have relabeled as the metaverse. So when we talk about, you know, why it's not an emerging technology, I would say, you know, at the core of it is, is, you know, kids and teenagers and adults have been playing online immersive games for years, for decades. That's not new. This has been going on for years, right? And the idea that brands are doing product placements in these games and allowing people to put a Gucci bag or Ralph Lauren shirt onto an avatar does not make it the metaverse. Those are those aren't net new. I mean, they're interesting, and it's gotten a lot of immediate attention. But they're not new net new ideas. It's not like literally a new technology that's enabling us to do that today. I'm seeing that from a couple of places, Julia. You're absolutely right. Um, from an enterprise collaboration perspective, we're seeing a lot of vendors who have been in the space of of online virtual collaboration that got accelerated because of the pandemic. Now seeing what's happening, looking at what Facebook has relabeled itself, and now they're relabeling their product as Metaverse. Um, that's happening on the enterprise side. On the on on the consumer side or, or the CMO side, we're seeing a lot of interest from marketers and CMOs who are being campaigned by their agencies. Let us help you develop a metaverse strategy. So that's coming back to us: is who do who do I go with? Should I have a metaverse strategy, and how should I get that strategy? I mean, what should you have a metaverse strategy? I don't know, Julie. What do you think? You should at least think about whether or not you should have a metaverse strategy, actually. So we've got a report about that coming out. But, you know, the metaverse is just like a lot of other technologies when it comes to making a decision about whether or not you should invest. You know, you always start with, you know, my target audience. Are they on one of these platforms? The largest platform we have today is Roblox with over 54 million daily active users. And you know what? Two-thirds of those consumers are under the age of 16 years. So that may or may not be your target audience. And by the way, most of that is happening on, on a smartphone, right? It's not happening in virtual reality, which is one of the other myths. And then you have to know what your business objectives are and what you want to do before you decide, you know, is the metaverse the right channel to engage my consumers? And then if so, you know, is it a good fit? What I want to do, right? So what we're seeing today is a lot of virtual goods for avatars and a lot of parkour games. 
And I would say for, and in some places that makes sense. If you look at China, there's far more familiarity with the metaverse and demand for that because consumers are more locked down. They've got less mobility. And so there is more interest in these virtual and immersive environments. And, you know, the United States comes up next on the list and then familiarity in Europe is even lower, right? So there's, you know, what the metaverse is competing with is the real world today. So let's bring it in one click in. So that's what didn't make the list. I know the, the technologies on this list are sort of categorized for how far out they are, how emerging they really are versus how close they are. Let's start from the furthest ones out. I think there are four on the list that are sort of across the chasm. Brian, you want to take us what those are? Well, I mean, there's two of those technologies that are definitely part of what we call metaverse precursors. They're going to be important pieces of the metaverse. I'm going to address one. I want to talk about Web3 just really quickly. And then the next one, extended reality, we're going to go back to Julie because obviously she knows a lot about that. But let's talk about Web3 for a sec. That word kind of gets slammed onto the end of metaverse and a lot of the inquiries we have. And that idea has been reinforced in the media quite a bit. And, and Web3 did make our, our list because we're seeing a lot more tangible uh, uh, things happening around Web3 technology specifically uh, when you start to see uh, applications built on the Ethereum platform. And people usually think of Ethereum as a coin, as a cryptocurrency, but what it really is, it's a platform for building applications. And the underlying programming language is something called smart contracts. And you can actually build distributed applications that run on this Ethereum platform. And we're seeing quite a few of those. The problem with Web3 today is that's one vision of what it is, uh, there are many other visions and $30 billion of investment in Web3 startups in, in 2021 didn't do anybody any favors because there's so much pressure, so much hype, so much now you know fear of missing out coming on behind that that no one can decide what Web3 is really. There's not really a, a business model for Web3 that has demonstrated the ability to make any return on investment. So we're not quite sure where it's going or kind of whose vision of Web3 is gonna win. Um, plus, most of the folks developing Web3 are, again, a much younger generation of, of, of users. Um, so it's a really kind of interesting space right now, and it certainly uh, deserves your attention. And to some extent, it gets connected to Metaverse because the, the, the visionary idea is that at some point, these distributed democratic applications People are going to interact with those applications and exchange NFTs, for example, in some kind of metaverse environment generally. But that's totally vision, right? And and like Julie said, there is no metaverse today. There's just these online worlds, and most of the most of the Web three stuff isn't happening in these online worlds. Are there specific industries that should be paying closer attention to Web three specifically? Yeah, two industries you really need to look at are uh, financial services and what's happening in DeFi, right? Decentralized finance. A lot of stuff happening there. Did you know that there's this idea of flash loans? And a flash loan is where money is loaned in crypto and taken back in one transaction at next to no interest. So it's almost free money that you get for a fraction of a, a second. But in that fraction of a second, you can go do an arbitrage, uh, an arbitrage engagement to go buy and sell some two different cryptos or take advantage of cryptocurrency price differences. So you can actually make a fair bit of money doing that. And we see that happening. You know, there was a four, you can blow your mind, $4 billion were, were traded in flash loans in 2021. That's crazy. You are correct. That blew my mind. <laughs> so it's certainly something to pay attention to, but it is 
across the chasm. It's on the frontier. It's at least five years from any positive benefit for most organizations. Um, as the second one is extended reality, um, which I'll let Julie talk about a bit because she worked with me on that research and it's her point of view. And so Julie, for XR, what do you think? Yeah, so with XR, uh, which is extended reality, which could be either uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, or something in between that we call mixed reality, there's two points of view here. So the first one is the consumer point of view. So the challenge that we have today is there just aren't very many use cases for consumers, and it's not very convenient to access extended reality experiences today. So one of the things that we know about you know, extended reality is that if consumers use it, it has an impact. But in the moments map that we have from 2022 that we published recently, we only have 42% of consumers that have even tried using augmented or virtual reality, and we've only got 28% that are comfortable doing so. So one of the factors and the inhibitors really is that most of us are having these experiences through some kind of a smartphone, which is great. You know, Pokemon Go is a lot of fun, but we haven't really evolved the use cases beyond that. Uh, folks like to speculate about the uh, the headsets or the heads, you know, uh, the displays, and you know, the point the challenge of it is, is there isn't a lot of content. There aren't a lot of use cases. And by the way, these headsets are expensive and they're hard to wear for very long. The battery doesn't last. They heat up. They're heavy. They're just not comfortable to wear. So when we look at adoption of VR headsets, the United States is about 10%, right? So the challenge is there just isn't, uh, not only is there not a business case there, there isn't really a use case or consumer demand for those experiences. Then you look into the enterprise. Um, my colleague JP Gounder has a lot, written about lots of case studies of companies using uh, VR headsets, especially for doing training, especially where the alternatives are very expensive. So, uh, uh, imagine one-off scenarios like a disaster at a nuclear plant or an emergency in a, in a manufacturing facility. Imagine a quarterback who needs a lot of reps out on a field. So where we see the use of virtual reality for training tends to be where the alternative is very expensive. So think military, think pilots and things like that. And then you get into things like augmented reality. Um, you know, and these headsets are very expensive. You know, you're talking about folks that are out in the field that need a hands-free way of getting instruction or some kind of tutorial to do a task when a second person either can't be there or it's, you know, cost prohibitive to have another person there to help. And so it's just, you know, bottom line, just the use cases aren't there and it's not convenient for us today. So that sounds like a great reason why it's not a very mainstream technology yet, but it also still made the top 10. So you just convinced, like, is that the way it's always going to be? Or is that just current state? And we feel strongly that actually it's going to take off in other use cases sometime soon? Or else, why the heck is it on the top 10 list? Great question, because this is an emerging technology that's been around for more than a decade, two decades, something like that. Uh, yeah, so I think it's a good question, Sharon. And what we do, there's a couple things that we think are on the horizon. So on one hand, we do think that we will see headsets that are affordable to consumers within the next four to five years. So we expect to see that happen. And with Facebook rebranding as Meta, and pushing more social media and gaming experiences into the devices, we think the the investment by the likes of Meta, uh, Microsoft, and so forth will push this forward the next, I'd say, like probably like four to seven years, which is about where we've timed this as a as a technology having an impact. And there's an enterprise angle to this as well, right? Enterprise uptick. We think the enterprise use of these technologies might actually precede consumer. So for that for those reasons, yeah, we think that that, that it just definitely deserves a place on the top ten. Yeah, so it's it's the economics and the uh, an enterprise can afford the headsets. All right, let's get a little closer in even more. 
the next group. Uh, maybe if you're an organization, you're not ready for the metaverse, you're not ready for Web3, you're not ready for VR. What, what should you be ready for at least in the next, what, two to three years? Maybe use that time frame. Um, yeah, so I, I think one of the things that, that we see is, is this notion of how are you going to trust artificial intelligence? And that's that when, you know, we talk to experts like Brandon Purcell about this, the know-how of how do you build a machine learning algorithm or how do you hire a firm to build a machine learning algorithm for you that can do something fantastic? We've kind of crossed that, right? It's fairly easy to at least go get the capability today. The question is, is are your executives going to trust what that thing is doing to the point where you're going to bet a significant amount of your business or your customer relationships on it? And when I talk to clients about it today, the biggest gap they have is, well, Maybe not, right? So explainable AI definitely made one of that, that two to four list because that's the technology aspect of a larger program of responsible AI, which is kind of the business initiative necessary to make sure that we're using these technologies, these algorithms in a way that, that uh, protects our customer relationships, protects our brand value, and also just tells us what's going on. So so intelligent agents are one of these core components as we think about how experiences become more invisible. So an intelligent agent could manifest itself to an employee or to a consumer through some kind of a text-based chat or even through some kind of a voice interface. And the real like aha and like the magic of these intelligent agents is that they can scale all kinds of coaching and assistance that otherwise would be out of the reach of most consumers today. So whether you're thinking about fitness coaching, health coaching, financial coaching, uh, mental health and all of the hot topics that we have today, it's these intelligent agents offer a massive opportunity on the coaching side, as well as on the self-service side for consumers, whether they're looking for help in making a purchase or, you know, some kind of post-purchase support. It's it, it, real interesting, Julie, because when you think about like two sides of the, that, that coin, when you think about what intelligent agents are able to do, leveraging things like machine learning and AI, what we also have in, in that kind of mid time frame is this idea of, intel, of edge intelligence. So 43% of firms today are saying they already invest in edge analytics. And so edge analytics is those IOT type of use cases. You have some piece of equipment or some server out of your data center or out of the cloud, and you're now analyzing this data that's too big or too fast to bring it back to the cloud. Most of those anal analytics today are heuristics. They're rules-based analysis. If this, then that. If it's in this band, then go do this thing kind of, kind of analytics. Well, what we're seeing through use cases like computer vision and some advanced machine learning is the ability to look at videos, look at voice, look at images, understand what's going on in those and make decisions based on that. Today, most of that is, is happening, but it's happening and all the information that those models are learning and training has to go back to some central cloud. And so the, the deployments of these across many different places, the models can't learn from each other. So Network Rail, which is a, their activity, their government agency in the UK is doing a pilot, a computer vision pilot on a, actually at the London Bridge Station. And they're deploying this computer vision platform into London Bridge Station to, to recognize unsafe conditions, suicide's an issue. How do you recognize that? There's all, you know, how does a disabled person, do they need assistance? And they've been very successful, but that particular deployment is only going to be for those 700 cameras that are in the London Bridge Station. In the future, edge intelligence means that those cameras, as they learn things in one station, will be able to things like 5G and software-defined networking, 
transmit those learnings and train and teach other models at other stations. Which means now when you learn what a suicide ritual looks like in one place, you can teach all the cameras in other places that don't see it that often, they can recognize it. So again, that's kind of an advancement. It's going to take a while. That's why it's in the two to four years, but that's definitely where we're headed. So what's going mainstream next year? There's two technologies on our list. It, it, we really debated this. Uh, Julie and I and another analyst, Martha, and a few others kind of had a big conversation about, are these things really emerging? And the two things that, that we saw is, is, is delivering benefit really quickly, like now to within the next year, are cloud-native computing and natural language processing. I'll take the first, and then I, I, I'll ask Julie about the second. A lot of people think cloud-native computing because cloud means you're moving everything on the public cloud. In fact, I've had that conversation with clients a lot. Cloud-native computing, they go, oh, yeah, we do that. We're on Amazon. That's not cloud-native computing. Cloud-native computing means that the technologies that Amazon and Microsoft and Google use to do what they do are now coming to everybody else through open source. Things like Kubernetes, Docker, service meshes. There's a program called Istio. Function as a service, there's an open source project called Knative. All of these know-hows and software packages necessary to help enterprises get aspects of cloud, no matter where they compute, on the edge, wherever, are now becoming available to them. And that's cloud-native computing, the fact that you can have cloud-like capabilities in your manufacturing plant. Um, interestingly enough, we just published our predictions on, on cloud and the main emphasis of our cloud predictions is that VM-based, uh, you know, virtual machine-based infrastructure management is a thing of the past. It should be considered legacy. And where we see firms going mainstream is shifting over to using Kubernetes and containers to manage portability of software across multiple environments. We think that's the next big thing, and that's what we mean. So it's still emerging because the adoption's ramping up, and there's still a lot of interesting software changes happening but it's also something that most enterprises today are, are moving towards. They're moving towards it, but how realistic is it that they're like, what percentage are actually gonna get there in the next couple of years? I feel like we've been, we've been talking about cloud for, feels like decades at this point, right? And it's still kind of taking a long time. And now we're saying, oh, you did cloud, but really it wasn't cloud. It was a lift and shift project. And now there's this new thing. So I'm just pushing on this one a little bit because it feels like, like a new thing to hype about, but is it really? Is it really going mainstream in the next year or two? I think what we've seen is the fact that it's not an all or nothing. It's not a lift and shift. It's a, most organizations have been at least experimenting with container-based infrastructure management for a number of years now. And they've got some of that in their pre-production or in their development environments. So what we're beginning to see as firms do re-architect their applications be driven primarily by wanting to get the benefits of public cloud, they're going to discover situations in which a particular public cloud vendor that may be their vendor of choice isn't able to meet the regulatory requirements, for example, to move a certain workload over into the public cloud. Now what enterprises have is another set of tools to integrate and get some of the benefits of public cloud by leaving that workload in a container in their data center because they can run that same workload in a container in the public cloud. So it's it's not it's not a it's not all or nothing. It's it's a gradual migration of using these technologies that will slowly replace virtual machines and other techniques we use in the past. And when we say it's going mainstream, 
what we think is it's moving from being that thing I use in pre-prod and development to accelerate testing into, no, I'm really running this workload in production. I'm work, running it in production in a container. And because I'm doing that, I'm able to discover the benefits of containerization for moving other workloads or distributing those workloads further out to the edge. That's happening. That's real. And that's what we think. Yeah. So I think, Brian, you know, the next one on the list that goes along with cloud native is what we're calling, you know, natural language processing. And you know, I talked earlier about our perspective on the future of experiences, right? We talked a little bit about how experiences are becoming more invisible, but at the same time, they're becoming more immersive. And the next big leap forward for both consumers and employees in the workplace is more conversational interfaces, whether they be text-based or voice-based. Uh, there simply aren't enough humans to scale things like live chat for consumers or employees to get the support that they want, whether they're considering making a purchase or they need some kind of a post-purchase support. And if we look today at the moments map, which we've published for 10 countries, but if we even just look at the United States, we have 70% of consumers that have adopted using text-based chat uh, to get to engage with a brand to get some kind of help, and 42% are comfortable doing so. So there's all of this demand, yet very few enterprises have stood up text-based chat or direct messaging as a channel to support customers. And if we think that's just for product support and making purchases, then if you think about all the services we talked about, whether it's for mental health, healthcare, financial coaching, we can't scale providing this level of service to consumers if we don't use some kind of automation. So if we don't have the ability for consumers to type in natural language questions and then get back answers and get support. And so we need to have natural language processing as well as natural language generation and like the whole family of technologies that go in to provide more automated support to consumers and employees through direct messaging or voice-based systems. Okay. So great list, guys. Let me ask you to wrap up with maybe some advice for our tech leaders and business leaders for that matter, thinking about emerging technology. What's your advice for them to take that list and figure out how does it apply to their specific situation, depending on their level of maturity with technology, their industry, their uh, staff, and, and, and figure out what to do tomorrow? So I'll lead off. This is a great question that I think the first thing is to understand that our list of 10 is not going to be the customer's list. Your, our clients will need their own list of 10, 20, 30, whatever they have the capacity to look at. We think these 10 should be on that list for almost all of our clients, but obviously each client needs to have their own list. Uh, and we have a lot of data behind the scenes. I'm working with clients every day to help them kind of tailor that list from all the technologies that we track. Given that, the thing that we think that clients need to do is they need to answer two questions. Is this technology ready for their business? Are there opportunities for value? And, and when might those opportunities for value happen? In the next 12 months, in a couple of years, someday, maybe five years or more away. But the second question that everyone kind of falls down on is, are they ready? Is, is the client ready for the technology? So is the technology ready for you? Are you ready for the technology? Those are the two questions. And the second question is harder. So one of the things that we've done is our survey data pretty consistently shows now over a number of years that a maturity spectrum uh, from a business perspective is what we call a customer-obsessed uh, maturity spectrum, right? We think the most advanced companies from a business operating model are customer-obsessed, and we have a lot of data to show that these customer-obsessed companies are actually growing faster than companies who are less mature on that spectrum. What's really interesting about our data, our survey this year, is that we were able to correlate that 3% of companies who are truly customer-obsessed 
those same 3% of companies are what we call future fit from a way they approach technology, their technology strategy. Well, what we found is that these, this 3%, that is where the money is. So when we talk about having two to three times growth faster than your other competitors in your industry, it's that very small section, a very small percentage who are driving that growth. And they're able to actually take a much more aggressive approach to look at these frontier technologies, the, the XR, the, the, the Turing bots that we didn't talk about those, uh, um, um, Web3. And they're able to actually start driving those things because they're mature enough to do so. And that's where we see those big advantages that companies, everybody wants from emerging technology is really reserved for that very narrow group. The more modernized organizations, about 37% of firms are actually modern in their approach. And that modern approach means you can lean a little bit more forward and start piloting and driving some innovation around the technologies in the middle, like edge intelligence. The mainstream firms, you've heard us say mainstream, the 59% of firms that are still traditional in the way that they approach their business and the way they approach technology management, you really need to focus on those near-term cloud-native and natural language processing technologies to get as much as you can from those as you begin to investigate opportunities in the things that are two to four years out. Put all the stuff on the frontier, put it on your watch list, understand it, don't pay too much attention to it now, specifically in these times of economic uncertainty. Julie, what about uh, business leaders, digital leaders, folks that are you know just as dependent on technology but might not be uh, the CIO or CTO? So for business leaders, the first thing is don't do anything just to seem innovative or just to seem cool. Uh, be purposeful, you know, be outside in. So, you know, it's like, it's kind of like if we think back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, well, I want to have an app. Today, the version of that, well, I want to do something in the metaverse, right? Uh, don't use technology that way. Uh, know, you know, know your audience, know your consumers, know your employees, know what they're comfortable doing. Have clear business objectives and know what you want to do before you decide, well, you know, is it the metaverse or what technologies do I want to use? And then step back and think, okay, well, what is the impact of those emerging technologies on the experience that I want to put in front of consumers or create for? employees and you know and back into it don't start with it great great insights thank you both for joining us today absolutely yeah a lot of fun thanks for having me thanks julie and brian if you like what you heard today subscribe to forester's what it means podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts or your favorite podcast player to continue the conversation follow forester on twitter instagram and linkedin or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.